Today on No Priors, we're speaking with Mustafa Suleiman, co-founder of DeepMind, the pioneering AI lab acquired by Google in 2014 for $650 million, and now co-founder and CEO of Inflection, along with Reid Hoffman and Corinne Simonian. Inflection just launched their first public product, Pi, last week. Mustafa, welcome to No Priors. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you today. I think one thing that'd be great to maybe start with is just a little bit of your personal story, because I think you have a really unique background. You're very well known, obviously, for um, DeepMind and your pioneering work in the AI world. But I think before all that, you worked on a Muslim youth helpline. You started a partnership and consultancy that was focused on conflict resolution to navigate social problems. I'd just love to hear a little bit more about the early days of things that you did before DeepMind, and then maybe we can talk a little about DeepMind and, and sort of more recent stuff as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, the truth is, I'm, I was very much a kind of change the world kid growing up, like um, a big believer in grand visions, doing good, having a huge impact in the world. And that was always kind of what drove me. Um, so when I, I grew up in London and went to Oxford, um, but at the end of the second year of my philosophy degree, I was kind of getting a bit frustrated with this sort of theoretical, you know, nature of it all. It was full of hypothetical moral quandaries. And um, so a friend that I met um, at Oxford was starting a telephone counseling service, a, a kind of helpline. And it really appealed to me. It was a non-judgmental, non-directional, secular support service for young British Muslims. And this was like about six months after the 9-11 attacks. And so there was quite a lot of like rising Islamophobia and the government was talking a lot about anti-terrorism and, you know, in general, I think that like sort of migrant communities were feeling the pressure. And um, this was a support service that was staffed entirely by us, by young people. I was 19 at the time. And yeah, I spent uh, almost three years working pretty much full time on, on that. And it was an incredible experience because it was basically my first startup and, you know, fundraising was the name of the game, except the numbers were much, much smaller than they are these days. Uh, and, you know, the, surface, the service was staffed by almost 100 volunteer young people, which was just amazing because we felt like we can actually do something. You know, it was quite liberating and energizing to actually give this a shot. And, you know, I was very much inspired by the kind of human rights principles. It was deliberately not religious, even though it used some of the kind of culturally sensitive language that helped people feel heard and understood. Um, so, yeah, it's had a, a very formative impact on my, my outlook. Yeah, no, it's, it's super interesting. And I think we can talk more about that in the context of AI in a little bit. One other thing that you did is you also started a consultancy where you worked as a negotiator and facilitator. And I believe you worked with clients like the United Nations, the Dutch government and others. Can you tell us a little bit more about that work as well? Yeah, I mean, I was always trying to figure out how to scale my impact. And, you know, I quite quickly realized that delivering a sort of one-to-one -one service via a nonprofit was not going to scale a great deal, even though it had an amazing impact, um, you know, on a kind of human-to-human -human level. And so I was super interested in these, like, meta structures, like how does you know, the UN actually influence, you know, behavior at, at, at the country level. Um, and, you know, how could we run more efficient decision-making processes 
um, where there's tension and disagreement. So we worked all over the world, actually, in Israel, Palestine, and in you know um, in Cyprus between the the Greeks and the Turks. Uh, my colleagues worked in South Africa, Colombia, Colombia, Guatemala, and I think it really taught me that learning to speak other people's social languages is actually an acquired skill, and you really can do it with a with a little bit of attention to detail and some patience and care, it's kind of a superpower being able to deeply hear other people and make them feel heard such that they're better able to empathize with people that they disagree with. And that, that's been an important theme throughout my kind of career, something I've always been interested in. So I think I, think I co-founded that uh, and worked on it for, I think, three years and soon realized the limitations of like, large-scale human processes. I mean, in 2009, uh, 2009, I worked, I facilitated one part of the climate negotiations in Copenhagen. And, uh, yeah, it was a kind of a remarkable experience, like, you know, 192 countries, literally a 1,000 NGOs and uh, activists, many different academics, everyone proposing a different solution, a different definition of the problem, and, you know, in one way, it was sort of inspiring to see so many different cultures and ideas coming together to try to form consensus around an issue that was clearly of existential importance. On the other hand, it was just like deeply depressing that we mm. weren't able to achieve consensus. It took another decade to even get mild consensus on this or half a decade, 2015. And I think that was sort of an eye-opener for me. I was like, the world's governance systems are not going to keep up with both the exponential challenges that we face from globalization and carbon emitting, but also like technology. And, and that was the next thing that I saw on the landscape. So how did this lead into your interest in AI? And, you know, I believe that you met uh, Demis when you were quite young, and I think he and your other co-founder worked together later in a lab, but I'm a little bit curious, like how your background and interests in these sorts of global issues then transformed into an interest in AI and the founding of DeepMind. Yeah, well, around about that time, actually, like, I guess it was like 2008 or so, I was starting to keep an eye on um, Facebook's rise. And I was like, this is incredible. I mean, this is like a two or three year old platform at that point, And it had hit like 100 million monthly actives. And that was just a mind-blowing number to me. And it, it was obvious that this wasn't just the kind of neutral platform for giving people access to information or connecting people with other people. The, the frame, because I had come from a conflict resolution background, our entire approach was like, what is the frame of a conversation? Like, how do you organize space? How do you prepare individuals to have a constructive disagreement? How do you, like, set up the the environment basically to facilitate dialogue. And so that was the lens through which I looked at Facebook. I was like, well, this is a frame. There's a choice architecture here. There are significant design choices which are gonna incentivize certain behaviors. Obviously at that point there wasn't really ranking, but even just having a thumbs up or like the choice of, you know, which button you place in what order and how you arrange information on the page and what, all of that drives behaviors um, in one way or another. And, you know, that was a big realization to me because I was like, well, this is actually reframing the default approach to human connection at a scale that is like completely unimaginable. I mean, perhaps only akin to, 
you know, the default expectations in a religion, for example. Everyone grows up with an idea that there is a, you know, a patriarchy, a male god, that, you know, that there's a particular role for women. Like, that's, that, you know, until a few decades ago, that was just an, an implied sort of undertone to an entire social structure for thousands of years. Uh, and that's kind of what I mean by frame. There's this, sort of these implicit design choices which cause hundreds of millions of people to change their behavior. Yeah, and I think that, that that's super interesting because I remember working on a bunch of Facebook apps at the time when the platform launched, and people were purposefully thinking about that stuff, but on the micro level, right? How do we get more users? How do we get people to convert? How do we drive certain behaviors? And so everybody, I think, was very explicitly thinking about this as a behavioral change platform, but not at the level of society. You know, right. we were thinking about it in the context of just like, how do you get more people to use this thing, you know? And so I think it's really interesting that people then later realize the big ramifications of this in terms of, you know, how that actually cascades in terms of social behaviors and other things. How did that lead to starting DeepMind? Well, it was clear to me from that moment on, like I left Copenhagen in 2009 thinking this is not the path to significant positive social change. It still needs to continue, and I support those processes, obviously, but I'm just saying it's just not something that I feel I could continue to work on full-time. And so my heart was set on technology at that point. So I reached out to Demis, who uh, was the brother of my best friend from when I was a kid. We got together, we had a coffee, we went and actually we played poker um, at, <laughs> at one of the casinos in London because we both love games, we're both super competitive, uh, both good at poker. And on that night, I think we both got knocked out pretty early <laughs> in the tournament. So we sat around drinking Diet Coke, uh, talking about ways to change the world. And we basically were, you know, having exactly this conversation. Like, you know, is it going to be... I mean, obviously, I, at that point, I was m mostly inspired by platforms and software and social apps and connectivity and so on. Whereas, um, you know, Demis was way more in the kind of robotics land and sci-fi land. I mean, he, he was he was fully thinking that, you know, the way to manage the economy, the way to make economic decisions was to simulate the entire economy. Right. And and he thought that he was very much obviously had just come off the back of his games like Evil Genius and Black and White and so on, which were kind of simulation based games. So I think that was his default frame at that point. Um, yeah, and then we spent many months talking and spent a lot of time with Shane Legg as well. And Shane was really the core driver of the ideas and the language around artificial general intelligence. I mean, he had worked on that for his PhD um, uh, with Marcus Hutter um, on definitions of intelligence. I, I found that super inspiring. I think that was actually the turning point for me that it was pretty clear that we at least had a thesis around how we could distill the sort of essence of human intelligence into an algorithmic construct. And it was it was his work in, I think he, I think for his PhD thesis, he put together like 80 definitions of intelligence and aggregated those into a single formulation, which was how do we, um, you know, the, the intelligence is the ability to perform well across a wide range of problems. And he basically, you know, gave, gave us a measurement, an engineering kind of measurement that allowed us to constantly measure progress towards, you know, whether we were actually producing an algorithm which was inherently general, i.e. it could do many things well at the same time. Is that the working definition you use for intelligence today? Um, 
actually no <laughs> i've changed <laughs> um i i think that there's a more nuanced version of that I, th I think that's a good definition of intelligence but i think in a weird way it's over rotated the entire field on one aspect of gen of intelligence which is generality you know and i think um open ai and um then subsequently anthropic and others have taken up this default sort of mantra that like it all that matters is can a single agent do everything you know can it be multimodal can it do translation and speech generation recognition etc cetera, etc cetera. i think there's another definition which is valuable which is the ability to direct attention or processing power to the salient features of a of uh, an environment given some context Right. So um, actually what you want is to be able to take your raw processing horsepower and direct it in the right way at the right time, because it may be that a certain tone or style is more appropriate given a context. It may be that a certain expert model is more suitable or it may be that you actually need to go and use a tool. Right. And obviously we're starting to see this emerge. Um, and in fact, I think. The key, and we can get into this obviously in a moment, but I, I think the key element that is going to really unlock this field is actually going to be the router in the middle of a series of different systems which are specialized, some of which don't even look like AI at all. They might just be traditional pieces of software, databases, tools, and other sorts of things. But it's the router uh, or, or the kind of central brain um, which is going to need to be the key decision maker. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the largest language model that we have. Right. It's really interesting because I feel like a lot of what you described is actually how the human brain seems to work in terms of you have something a little bit closer to a, a mixture of experts or MOE model where you have the visual cortex responsible for visual processing and then you have a other piece of the brain specifically responsible for empathy and you have mirror neurons and you know it feels like the brain is actually this ensemble model in some sense with some some routing depending on the subsystem you're trying to access and so you know the generality approach seems like a really it, it almost goes at odds with some of those pieces of it unless you're just talking about some part of the hippocampus or something right well i think that's long been the inspiration right i think for everybody the, these neural networks are the obvious example but in mm -hmm. many other elements reinforcement learning um you know and so on are, are, are all brain inspired and i think that you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, sparsity as well, which is sort mm. of what you're describing. And, you know, so far we've we've had to do, you know, very dense all-to-all -all connections because we sort of haven't quite learned the algorithms for sparse activations. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that's going to be a very promising area. And, you know, in many ways what I'm describing doesn't actually require sparse activations because, you know, you, you actually could just train a decision-making engine at the middle to know when to use which size model, right? So maybe in some contexts, you would want the highest quality, super expensive 20-second latency model. And in most other contexts, a super fast three-second mini model might work fine. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the the key unlock, actually. And, and quite sort of remarkably, that's an engineering problem, um, perhaps more than it is a, an AI problem, which, you know, is, is just a pretty surreal moment, give, you know, just if you actually observe that, given where we are in the field and stuff. Mm -hmm. When you um, started DeepMind, I think it was reasonably unpopular to do what you were doing, right? And so I think you ended up getting funded <laughs> by um, Founders Fund and Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. But I remember at the time there was like 
three or four parties that funded a lot of AI things and then nobody else was really doing it in terms of the types of approaches you were taking in terms of saying, we're going to build these big AI systems that can do all sorts of things, right? Yeah. I mean, it was wacky. Like, it, I, I can't say that enough. Like, it, it, it was especially for the first two years. So because we founded in 2010 and for the most of the sort of spring and summer of 2010, actually most of the rest of that year, I was going to Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit at UCL, sneaking in with Demis and Shane to just sit in on the lunches that uh, Peter Diane ran. And I remember Shane like sort of saying to me, like, you know, the language here is machine learning. Yeah, you can say AI. Don't say AI. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I was like, okay, okay, I'll keep my mouth shut. Don't worry. <laughs> like, we certainly don't say AGI, um, you know. And and that that was a kind of, that was pretty weird. I mean, that you know, there weren't, you know, there weren't very many funders for us. Like, you know, Peter Thiel, you know, to his credit, uh, did actually have significant vision here, although he sold pretty early, I think, and now doesn't seem to be in the game. So... But uh, yeah, he certainly he certainly saw it first, um, and you know, I think that all changed pretty quickly. First with uh, you know AlexNet, of course, in 2012, and then with DQN, uh, the Atari paper in 2013, um, you know, and then a kind of succession of breakthroughs after AlphaGo, and people got more 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 sort of aware of it. But it still surprises me the extent to which the rest of the world is like suddenly waking up. And obviously we've seen that like crazy in the last six months. So, yeah. And then I guess last question on sort of your time with uh, Google and DeepMind, and because I think there's a lot of really exciting things to talk about in the context of inflection and sort of the broader field and world. What are some of the things you were most excited to have the team create at DeepMind over the years or some of the breakthroughs that you're most proud of? Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways, we, we, we definitely sort of pioneered the deep reinforcement learning effort. And I think, um, you know, in principle, it's a very promising direction. I mean, you clearly want some mechanism by which you can learn from raw perceptual data. And that directly feeds into a reinforcement learning algorithm that can update and essentially iterate on that in real time with respect to some reward function whether that's online or offline, like directly interacting with the real world in real time, or it's, you know, in, in a kind of batch simulation mode, um, you know, and, and that turned out to be very valuable for a specific type of problem um, where a game-like environment had a very structured scalar reward and we could play that game many millions of times. Um, that's part of the reason why we started the Alpha Fold project, because... It was actually my group that was um, looking around for other applications of DQN-like, AlphaGo-like uh, tools. And uh, in a hackathon um, that we did one week, um, someone stumbled across, across this problem. We'd actually looked at it back in 2013 when it was called Foldit, which was uh, a very small-scale kind of version of this. And, and just for context, sorry to interrupt, um, you know, AlphaFold was focused on folding proteins, which at the time was a really hard problem, right? People were trying to do this molecular modeling, and they couldn't really make any real headway in lots of the traditional approaches. And then your group at DeepMind really started pioneering how to think about protein folding in a different way. So sorry to interrupt, I just wanted to give context for people listening. So I, th I think the hackathon was probably 2016. And then as soon as we saw the hackathon, that, you know, start to work, then we actually you know, scaled up the effort and hired 
um, you know, a bunch of outside consultants to help us with the domain knowledge. And then I think the following year we um, entered the CASP competition. So, you know, these things take a long time uh, and, you know, sort of longer than I think people realize. You know, there's a lot of, it was a, that was a very big effort by DeepMind and eventually it became a, a company-wide um, strike team. Um, so in, in hindsight, these things do take a huge amount of effort. Yeah, the fascinating thing here is that, you know, the work started with AlphaGo, which was how to play Go better, right, or how to beat people at Go. And then the same underlying approach could then be morphed and applied to protein folding, which I think is an amazing sort of leap or connection to make. And, you know, I used to work as a biologist, and I remember you'd spend literal years trying to crystallize proteins in different solutions. You do all these different salt concentrations in each well. So the protein would crystallize, so you could hit it with x-rays, and then you'd interpret those x-rays to look at the structure, right? And so you had to do this really hard sort of chemistry and physics to get any information about a protein at all. And then you folks with the machine ran through every protein sequence, literally in, in, the, in, the, in every database for every organism, and you're able to then predict folding, which is it's pretty amazing. It's very striking. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the... The, if if I were to sort of summarize the core thesis of DeepMind, it was that it would be possible to, the motivation for generality was that you would be able to learn, um, you know, a, a rewarding behavior in one environment and transfer in a more compressed or efficient representation the insights that had made you successful in one environment to the next environment, right? That transfer learning has always been the key goal and that was one of the one of the very exciting proof points that it is you know um increasingly looking likely that that's possible so you know i definitely think that's that's pretty cool because if, when you think about the sorts of problems that we're facing in the world today we don't have obvious answers lying around there's no like genius insight that's just waiting to be applied we actually have to discover new knowledge and i think that's the that's the attraction of artificial intelligence that's why we want to work on these you know, on these models, because, you know, we're, we're sort of at the limit of what, you know, the smartest humans in the world are, are capable of inventing. And we have, you know, very pressing, urgent global challenges, you know, from food supply to water to decarbonization to clean energy, transportation, you know, with a rising population that we really want to solve. So there are that, you know, amidst all of the stresses and the fears about everything that's being worked on at the moment it is important to keep in mind that there is a an important north star that everybody is working towards and we just got to keep focused on those goals rather than sort of be too sidetracked by um, some of the fears let's talk about inflection what was the motivation for starting another company um well <clears throat> i guess back in sort of 2018 2019 it wasn't clear that neural networks were going to have a significant impact in language. If you just think about it intuitively, um, for the for the previous sort of five years, CNNs had been effective at learning structure locally, right? So pixel in an image in the input. So pixels in an image that were correlated in space tended to produce, you know, sub features which were you know, a good representation of what you were trying to predict. Maybe there were lines and edges and they grew into eyes and faces and scenes and so on. And that kind of hierarchy just intuitively seemed to make sense and seemed to apply to audio and, and other modalities, right? Whereas 
if you kind of think about it, a lot of the structure of predicting the next word or letter or token in a sentence seems to exist in a very, very, very spread out, you know, far removed from the immediate next step of the prediction, right? And so it didn't look like that was working. And then, to be honest, like, when GPT-3 came out, that was like a big revelation. Um, I I had seen the GPT-2 work and hadn't quite clicked for me that this was significant. It was really only when I started saw the GPT-3 paper that my eyes were wide open to this possibility. It's pretty amazing that you could attend to, you know, a very, very sparse, seemingly sparse representation and use that to predict something which on the face of it seemed like there were billions of possibilities of what might come next in a sentence, right? Maybe tens of millions or something, but a lot. And for me, it was early 2020 that I went uh, to work at Google and uh, I got involved in the large language model efforts. I got involved in the MENA team that was called at the time. I know that you guys had Noam on the show recently. Um, Noam's super awesome. And it was me and Noam, Daniel, Kwok Lee, uh, and a few others. And it was just unbelievable what was being built there. And um, at, uh, when I joined, it was pretty small models. And um, very quickly, we scaled it up. It became the, the Lambda group. Um, and we started seeing how it could potentially be used in various kinds of search. Started looking at retrieval, grounding for improving factuality. Started getting a feel for all the hallucinations and so on. And that was just really a mind-blowing few years to me. And um, while I was there, sort of in the in the last year in 2021, I tried pretty hard to get things launched at Google. We were all kind of banging on the table, being like, come on, this is the future. And, uh, you know, um, obviously David Luan from Adept was also in and around that group. So the three of us in our own ways were pushing pretty hard for, for launch. And um, it wasn't meant to be. Uh, just, you know, timing is everything. And, you know, Google just wasn't wasn't the right timing for Google for various reasons. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I was just like, look, this this has to be out there in the world. This is this is clearly the new wave of technology. And so, yeah, in January, I left, got together with Karen, my co-founder, um, who I worked with at DeepMind for seven years. We bought his company back in 2014 at DeepMind. He led the um, deep learning scaling team at DeepMind for years and worked on all the big breakthroughs at DeepMind. Uh, and then, of course, Reid Hoffman, who's been my uh, one of my closest friends for like 10 years. And we've always talked about starting something together. And um, I was like, this is the obvious thing. Now is the time for sure. And so the rest is history. You know, we've, we, we've it's been a wild ride since then. It makes me feel a little bit better that somebody who's been such a pioneer in the field uh, and working on this all the time is still constantly surprised, as I am also constantly <laughs> surprised. Um, I, I remember when you were first starting to get this going, I another thing I was surprised by is the focus you, I mean, I came around to it uh, in, in writing the investment memo, but you, you, know, you had this focus on the idea of companionship rather than information as the right initial approach. Uh, you've talked about, worked on, thought about empathy for humans and other populations for a long time. It seems counterintuitive. Like, wh why companionship? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think to step one step back from that first, I think my core insight about what was missing for Lambda was interaction feedback. And 
um, in a funny way, that was exactly what was motivating Karen too. Mm -hmm. um, having beaten all the, the academic benchmarks and achieved Soto many times, he had come to the same conclusion. I had seen the same thing from Lambda. What we were missing was, was user feedback. And um, actually, when you think about it, all of our interfaces today are fundamentally about interaction. You know, you're giving your browser feedback all the time. You're giving, uh, you know, that web service feedback, same with an app or anything that you interact with. It's actually a dialogue. And so the way I'd position Lambda at Google is that, you know, conversation is the future interface. And Google is already a conversation. It's just an appallingly painful one, right? You say something to Google, it gives you an answer in 10 blue links. You say something about those 10 blue links by clicking on it. You it, it generates that page. You look at that page. You say something to Google by how long you spend on that page, what you click on it, how much you scroll up and down, et cetera, et cetera. And then you come back to the search login and you update your query and you say something again to Google about what you saw. That's a dialogue and Google learns like that. And the problem is it's, you know, using uh, 1980s yellow pages to have that conversation. And actually now we can do that conversation in fluent natural language. And I think the problem with what Google has sort of, I guess, in a way, accidentally done to the internet is that it has basically shaped content production in a way that optimizes for ads and everything is now SEO'd for, to within an inch of its life. You know, you you go on a web page and all the text has been broken out into sub bullets and subheaders and, you know, separated by ads. And, you know, you, you spend like five to seven or 10 seconds just like scrolling through the page to find the snippet of the answer that you actually wanted. Like most of the time you're just looking for a quick snippet. And if you are reading, it's just in this awkward format. And that's because if you spend 11 seconds on the page instead of five seconds, that looks like high quality content to Google and it's quote unquote engaging. So the content creator is incentivized to keep you on that page. And that's bad for us because what we want is a succinct. We as humans. Well, we as humans, all humans yeah. clearly want a high quality, succinct, fluent natural language answer to the questions that we want. And then crucially, we want to be able to update our response without thinking, how do I change my query and like write this? We've learned to speak Google. Like it's a crazy environment. We've learned to Google, right? We, that, mm -hmm. That's just a weird lexicon that we've co-developed with Google over 20 years. No, like now that has to stop. That's over. That moment is done. And we can now talk to computers in fluent natural language and that is the new interface um so that, that that's what i think is going on maybe we should back up for a second and just tell people about what pi is sure yeah so building on all of that we think that pi i think that everyone in the next few years is going to have their own personal ai right so there's going to be many different types of ai um, there will be business AIs, government AIs, nonprofit AIs, political AIs, influencer AIs, brand AIs. All of those AIs are going to have their own objective, right? Aligned to their owner, which is to promote something, sell something, persuade you of something. And my belief is that we all as individuals want our own AIs that are aligned to our own interests and on our team and in our corner. And that's what a personal AI is. And ours is called Pi, uh, personal intelligence. 
it is, as you said, there to be your companion. Um, we've we've started off as uh, with with a style that is um, empathetic and supportive, and we tried to sort of ask ourselves at the beginning, like what makes for great conversation when you have a really flowing, smooth you know, generative interaction with somebody, what's the essence of that? And I think there's a few things like the first is the other person really does listen to you, right? And they demonstrate that they've heard you by reflecting back some of what you've said. They add something to the conversation, you know, so it's not just regurgitation, but they introduce another nugget, another fact. Um, they ask you follow-up questions and they're curious and interested um, in what you say. And, you know, sometimes there's a bit of spice, right? They throw in something silly or surprising or random or kind of wrong and it's endearing. And you're like, oh, like we're, that, that, we're connecting. And so we've tried to, as in our first version, and this really just is a first version, like this is actually not even our biggest model at the moment. Um, so we're just putting out a first version that is skinned for this kind of interaction so that we can sort of learn and improve. And, you know, it really makes for a good companion um someone that is thoughtful and kind and interested in in your world as a as a first start you're working on these sort of personalized intelligence or personal agents and you mentioned how you think in the future there'll be all these different types of agents for representing different businesses or causes or political groups or the like what do you think that means in terms of how the web exists and how it's structured so to your point the web is effectively really based on a lot of seo and a lot of sort of google as the access point what happens to web pages or what happens to the structure of the internet? I think it's going to change fundamentally. I think that most computing is going to become a conversation. And a lot of that conversation is going to be facilitated by AIs of various kinds. So your pie is going to give you a summary of the news in the morning, right? It's going to help you keep learning about your favorite hobby, whether it's cactuses or, you know, like motorcycles, right? And so, you know, every couple of days it's going to send you new updates, new information in a summary snippet that really kind of suits exactly your reading style and your interests and your preference for consuming information. Whereas a website, you know, the traditional open internet just assumes that there's a fixed format and that everybody wants a single format. And generative AI clearly shows us that we can make this dynamic and emergent and entirely personalized. So, you know, if I was Google, I would be pretty worried because the car, that's, that's, that, that, that old school system does not look like it's going to be where we're at in 10 years time. It's not going to happen overnight. There's going to be a transition. But these kind of succinct, dynamic, personalized, interactive moments are, are clearly the future, in my opinion. The other group of people that is clearly worried is anybody with a with a website where their business is that website. I spent a lot of time talking to publishers in April because they were freaking out. And uh, what ad what advice would you have for people who like generate content today? Well, I think that you know, an AI is kind of just a website or an app, right? So you can still have. Like, let's say that you have a blog about baking and so on. You, you know, you're, you can still produce super high quality content with your AI and your AI will, you know, be, I think, a lot more engaging and interactive um, for other people to talk to. So to me, any brand is already kind of an AI. It's just using static 
tools, right? So, so you know, for, for a couple hundred years, the ad industry has been using color and shape and texture and text and sound and image to generate meaning, right? It's just they release a new version every six months or every year, right? And it's, you know, the same thing that applies to everybody, like TV ads used to be, right? Whereas now that's going to become much more dynamic and interactive. So I, I really don't subscribe to this view that there's going to be like one or five AIs. I think this is like completely misguided and fundamentally wrong. There are going to be hundreds of millions of AIs or billions of AIs, and, and they'll be aligned to individuals. So what we don't want is autonomous AIs that can operate completely independently and wander off doing their own thing. That I, I'm really not into that vision of the world. That doesn't end well, right? But you know, if your blogger, you know, has, you know, their own AI that represents their content, then I imagine a world where my pie will go out and talk to that AI and say, yeah, like my Mustafa is super interested to learn about baking. He can't crack an egg. So where does he need to start? Right. And then pie will have an interaction and be like, oh, that was really kind of funny and interesting. Mustafa will really like that. And then Pi will come back to me and be like, hey, I found this great AI today. Maybe we could set up a conversation. You'll find something super interesting. Or they recorded this, this little clip of me and the other AI interacting. And here's a three-minute three video or something like that, right? That'll be how new content, I think, gets produced. And I think it'll be your AI, your Pi, your personal AI, that acts as interlocutor accessing the other world, which is basically, by the way, what Google does at the moment, right? Google crawls other, you know, essentially AIs that are statically produced by, you know, the existing methods and has a little interaction with them, ranks them, and then presents them to you. Back to your original point on Facebook, I think um, one thing Facebook has been uh, criticized for is the creation of context bubbles, where the only information that you see is information that you know you you kind of inherently believe, or the feed is kind of tailored to you. And if you think about some of these AI agents, one could argue they're going to be the extreme form of this, right? In, in the downside case. In the upside case, obviously, there's other versions of this. But the downside case is it will just constantly use the feedback from you to reinforce things you already strongly believe, whether they're correct or not. And so I'm a little bit curious how you think about this. As we go through this new platform shift, and you mentioned that you identified some of these issues quite early on with some of the Facebook or other social platforms, how do you think about that in the context of AI agents? I think that is the default trajectory without intervention, right? So that might be a controversial view, but you know, I, I think that the platforms were never neutral. That was the big lie. And I think that was, frankly, to me, very obvious from the very beginning. The choice architecture is a ranking. It's not a clean feed. Clearly, there's billions of bits of content. So you have to select what to show and what to show, you know, is is a huge, uh, you know, sort of political, cultural influence on, on how we end up. And so, of course, AI is an accelerated version of that. Um, my take is that all of us AI companies, as well as the old social media platforms, have to embrace the platform responsibility of curation and try to be as transparent as possible about what that um, curation actually looks like, what, what is excluded. Um, and here, I think that, you know, the Valley probably needs to be a bit more open to the European approach. Um, the reality is that, you know, 
we have to figure out as a society which bodies we trust to make decisions which influence recommendation algorithms or AI algorithms, right? Um, and if that's a requirement for transparency of training or if it's a requirement for transparency with respect to content that has been excluded or what has been upvoted or downvoted, um, fundamentally, we have to make these things accountable to democratic structures. And that means that democratic structures need to sort themselves out pretty sharpish and like actually have some functioning bodies that can provide real oversight without everybody like fainting over the accusations that this is censorship and being super churlish about that because you know n now really is the time to like actually get that a bit more straightened out and and have some kind of responsible interactions with these companies because you're right these are going to be very very powerful systems this is my bias coming in, but that seems like a harder hill to climb than the AGI hill. Um, I, I, wanna... <laughs> I think we all agree. With I that. hope not. I think I do agree, <laughs> but I hope not. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can all work on it. Um, so you you describe Pi as like the first foray that you guys can get out into the world and um, learn from and, and improve with. What does improvement mean? Like, how do you are you measuring emotional intelligence? What is better? Yeah. Yeah, we're certainly measuring emotional intelligence. We're measuring the fluidity of the conversation. We're measuring, you know, how respectful it is. We're measuring how even-handed it is. Um, you know, we've already had a couple of errors where it's made some um, politically biased remarks, and we've tried super hard to make sure that it's even-handed, no matter how, you know, sort of racist, homophobic, or misogynist in any way. It's mm -hmm. It should never be dismissive, disrespectful, or judgmental of you. Um, it's there to talk through issues and make you feel heard and um, take feedback. Like it tries very hard to take feedback. So yeah, that's that's we're measuring all of those kinds of things. But, but the next phase of obviously where we're headed is that um, we really think that this is gonna be your ultimate personal digital assistant. And um, it is going to, as I said, interact with other AIs to make decisions by your groceries and, you know, manage your sort of domestic life and help you book vacations and, you know, find, you know, fun information and that kind of stuff. So it's going to get, you know, increasingly more, uh, you know, down that route. And, um, you know, the other thing is that quite soon it will um, have the ability to access real time content in the web. So it'll be able to, you know, sort of look up uh, the weather and news and, other kind of fresh content like sports results or provide citations um, and, you know, increasingly add a lot more of those sort of practical utility features that you would expect from, you know, your personal intelligence. So in my early conversations with my Pi, um, uh, I, I guess maybe I shouldn't be so surprised. It's very human and people like to talk about themselves, but I immediately invested a reasonable amount of effort in personalizing it. Right. I'm like, OK, here are a bunch of things about me that you should know what I'm like and my interests and how you can be useful to me. What surprised you in usage or, or maybe yeah. you expect it? But what, what would surprise our listeners? Yeah, it's a, it, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of people proactively share a huge amount of personal information. And at the moment, um, our memory is is not that long. It's about 100 messages, which is actually, you know, it's still quite a lot, surprisingly a lot. Um, but. What we would really like is to be able to um, grab that knowledge and store it in your own sort of personal 
brain and have pi be your kind of second mind um able to remember you know all of your kind of subtle preferences likes habits relations and so on to be super useful to you i think in time some people will want to connect other data sources like email and documents and drive i think some people i'm already starting to see doing that um uh, and so on it's very interesting to hit, see what people ask pi to ask us to do so they're like can you tell your developers that i really love this voice i'm really enjoying talking to uh you know i think it was p2 one of, we've just called them p1 p2 p3 p4 our voices um and of course some people are like can you tell your developers that it should really know that like i wrote you know the following stories for forbes but like i didn't write this story on this other topic and i'm just like <laughs> Dude, (laughs) that was a journalist yesterday or the day before. Um, You know, so yeah, seeing what people give us feedback on is really, really helpful. Okay, Inflection today, still a relatively small team. What's it like as a company culturally? Like, and you guys are recruiting. What are you looking for? Yeah, um, we're a pretty small team. We're about 30 people and we've hand selected a very, very talented uh team of of ai scientists and and engineers everybody uh on the technical side goes by mts super important to us that we don't draw a strong distinction between researchers scientists engineers data scientists and anything else Uh, to us that uh, equality and respect is really important and we've seen that go wrong at our you know other labs previously and i think it's an important modification because everybody makes a really big contribution we're very much an applied ai company so you know we don't publish and we're not really focused on research even though fundamentally what we do do is applied research in production i mean we we run some of the largest language models in the world um we have state of the art performance across many of the main benchmarks uh, with the exception of coding because we don't have pi generate code and it's not a priority for us so it's a yeah it's a it's a very energetic very high standards environment um we're very focused on ics so um everybody is an exceptional individual contributor um and mostly self-directed so we don't do managers just yet uh, it's just two of us doing management um, which unbelievably has worked so, so well um, because we have such senior experienced people and they're very driven, they know what to do. My experience of building teams like this over the last you know, decade and a half is that the best people really just want to work with really high quality people, be given outstanding amounts of resources and freedom um, and focus on a shared goal. So we have a very sort of explicit company goal every six weeks we we ship and in our seventh week we come together in person to do a hackathon and really push super hard um, as a team because that forms great bonds and you know it's it's really fun you know we have drinks and dinner and hang out and stuff like that and it's a week of intensity which closes our launch and then we plan again for the next six weeks so it's actually a really nice rhythm and i found that most people make up the second half of their okrs anyway and a 12-week cycle is just too long and bs so like six weeks is actually perfect and it creates a lot of accountability and a lot of fun. So, you know, one thing that a lot of people talk about is how do these models actually scale? What is the basis for the next generation of these types of models, their performance? Where does it asymptote? How do you think about scalability 
How do you think about the underlying silicon that drives it? Is it a data issue? Is it a compute issue? Like, I'm, I'm just really interested in how you think about more broadly these really large-scale models since you folks are building many of them now. Well, the the incredible thing about where we've got to at this point is that all of the progress, in my opinion, is a function of compounding exponentials, right? So over the last decade, the amount of compute that we've used uh, to train the largest models in the world has um, increased by an order of magnitude every single year. So I went back and, and, and had a look at the Atari DQN paper that we published in 2013, um, and that used just two petaflops, right? And some of the biggest models that we're training today uh, at inflection uh, use 10 billion petaflops. So like <laughs> nine orders of magnitude in nine years is like just insane. So I feel like it's super important to stay humble and acknowledge that there is this epic wave of exponentials which is unfolding around us which is actually shaping the industry and so when it comes to predictions you have to just like look at the exponential it's pretty clear what's going on that's just on the amount of compute side the data side i think everyone's super familiar with we're using vast amounts of data and that's continuing but i think the other thing that people don't always appreciate is that the models are also getting much more efficient so, um, you know, one of the big breakthroughs of last year, which got some attention, but probably didn't quite get as much given how many breakthroughs there were, was the Chinchilla paper, which I'm sure, you know, a bunch of you will be familiar with. But, you know, there's a very, very significant result showing that, you know, we could actually train uh, much smaller models with much more data for longer. And that was actually compute optimal and achieve essentially comparable performance to the models that were previously being trained. And so that gives us an indication that it's very early in the space for architectures. And um, these models are highly under-optimized and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And so that's what we found, uh, you know, over the last year and a half. So actually the lead author of Chinchilla, uh, Jordan Hoffman, is uh, on my team here at uh, Inflection. And we have a bunch of really outstanding people who have produced a number of really awesome proprietary uh, innovations building on work like that. And so I think both trajectories are going to play out. Scale, building larger models is definitely going to deliver returns. We're obviously pursuing that. We have one of the largest supercomputers in the world, uh, you know, and at the same time, we're going to see much more efficient architectures, which are going to mean that many, many people can access these models. And it's, it's in that sense, it's the coming wave of contradictions in AI. That's, uh, that's what's happening. I have one last question for you. So sure. you are working on a book. I know you can't say much about it yet, but why? You're a pretty busy guy. I love reading. I love writing and I love thinking about stuff. And what I've realized over the years is that the best way to sharpen your thoughts is to create hard deadlines. <laughs> so that was like one of the main things. And I'll be honest, like, did I regret multiple times over the last year and a half agreeing to a book deal with Penguin Random House at the same time as doing a startup? Yes, like multiple times I was tearing my already quite gray hair out. But uh, it's nearly finished and it has been absolutely phenomenal. And yeah, I've, I've super enjoyed it. The book's called the book's called The Coming Wave. And it's about the uh, consequences of the AI revolution and, and the synthetic biology revolution over the next decade for the future of the nation state. And I try to sort of 
um, intersect the political ramifications with uh, with the technology trajectories um, at the same time. So it's it's been a lot of fun. My hobbies are also this trivial, Mustafa. So. <laughs> Good. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on the launch. Uh, and for our listeners, you can try it at inflection.ai and find Pi in the App Store. Thanks so much. It's really fun talking to you both. Uh, see you soon. Take care.